Good evening and welcome. My name is Reginald Harris, and this is a poem by Lucille Clifton. Sorrows. Who would believe them winged? Who would believe they could be beautiful? Who would believe they could fall so in love with mortals that they would attach themselves as scars attach and ride the skin? Sometimes we hear them in our dreams, rattling their skulls, clicking their bony fingers. They have heard me beseeching as I whispered into my own cupped hands, enough, not me again. But who can distinguish one human voice amid such choruses of desire? And this is also a poem by Lucille Clifton. Why some people be mad at me sometimes. <laughs> they ask me to remember, but they want me to remember their memories, and I keep on remembering mine. Um, I have tried to have a mantra in my head. Don't cry, don't cry, don't cry, <laughs> don't cry. Um, the genesis of this evening actually started a number of years ago when a uh, friend and fellow poet and I had one of those wild ideas. We said, you know, it would be really great in February for Valentine's Day to have a We Love Lucille reading. That we'd get a bunch of people together, a bunch of poets together, and just, you know, invite Miss Clifton to just have her come up and read her and just tell her how much we adore her and, and love her. And we said, you know, yeah, that's a really good idea. We should work on it. And, well, you know, so this is We Love Lucille because we do. I also want to say, too, that in telling myself, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry, is that I was looking at the books that I, of hers that I had her sign, and she always signed Joy! Exclamation point. And so I say that to us today, joy, exclamation point. Thank you, universe. Thank you, God. Thank you, whomever, for giving us Lucille and allowing us to know her and be with her and to have this amazing work that you will be hearing and these wonderful memories that we will be discussing uh, tonight. We are going to go um, in the order um, that's in the program with one slight um, variation because we have a reader that has to leave a little bit early. Um, there will be uh, times between the groups of uh, readers, if everybody's here, I don't see a couple people like Dennis right now, um, for your um, thoughts, your memories. We have a microphone here. And Rosemary Klein, Rosemary, so hold up your hand if you feel moved to read a poem. Rosemary has got a group of poems with her if you would like to read a poem. You will put them over here. Great. Okay, that's perfect. Um, and I also wanted to point out, those of you who uh, have noticed out on the table, in addition to uh, materials from the Maryland Humanities Council and those of us here at the library and that wonderful article that was in the city paper um, yesterday, there are copies of the Little Patuxent Review. Thank you, Linda Joy Burke, um, for this, uh, which has a special... Uh, uh, section, uh, memory, and some poems by Miss Clifton as well. Um, and so that's out there. Um, we will start with our readers, and let me see who is. Uh, Bettina, I know, is here. Virginia's here. Dennis? Yeah, there he is. Okay. So Phoebe Stein Davis, Melvin Brown, we hope, Bettina Judd, Virginia Crawford, and Dennis Barnes. 
Thank you very much, Reggie. Um, I'm actually going to leave some of the readings to the poets, but I just have one minute of things to say. My name is Phoebe Stein Davis. I'm the executive director of the Maryland Humanities Council, which is just around the corner. And I want to thank the Pratt so much for holding this wonderful celebration of Lucille Clifton's work and life. The Humanities Council is an educational nonprofit, and we serve the entire state. And really what we're dedicated to is using the humanities, poetry, literature, history, philosophy, ethics, to get people thinking and talking with one another. We're also the home of Maryland Center for the Book. Um, we worked with Ms. Clifton over a number of years on a number of programs through our grants program primarily. But I think she was and is so important because she's someone who really exemplified the power of the humanities. Lucille Clifton was someone who spoke her truth, and she encouraged us to be brave enough to do the same. And this is what great humanists do. They entreaty us to ask the hard questions, to look at our world from a myriad of perspectives, to have empathy, to pause and consider our actions and their impact, in our fast-paced, information-obsessed culture, Clifton's is a voice of reason and reflection. As she put it in her poem, We Are Running, Oh, pray that what we want is worth this running. Pray that what we're running toward is what we want. While her loss is felt deeply in the humanities community across the country, and in Maryland particularly, certainly her voice lives on. So I can't wait to hear her voice now. I'm so happy that Reginald um, mentioned the way she signed her books. I was thinking about that today in preparation um, for this evening. In the few times I've met Lucille Clifton and got a chance to speak to her, I've approached her with a book in my hand for her to sign. The times that I've done this, I've tried to solicit a longer message than her standard signature of joy, exclamation point. I would tell her how much her poetry has influenced me, about my first encounters with her poetry, much to no avail, joy, exclamation point, <laughs> Lucille Clifton. <laughs> My consistent dissatisfaction with the signature amplifies the importance of her writing it. I was dissatisfied with joy, exclamation point, because I wanted her to convey some brilliance to me as a young, aspiring poet. <laughs> I was also dissatisfied because I was, at my core, afraid of what it meant to experience true joy. Because true joy comes a with a lot of responsibility to my community, to my family, to my God. But the answer to any of the questions I would have to ask her, such as, Miss Clifton, how do I become a better poet? Miss Clifton, how do I survive the way you have? Miss Clifton, how, do I, how can I love myself the way you do in homage to my hips? The answer, no doubt, would be joy, exclamation point, joy, exclamation point, joy, exclamation point. And these are the kinds of lessons that children learn over time. Over time, because children, particularly rambunctious children like myself, know everything before they are taught. 
I never felt comfortable with calling Miss Lucille Mama Lucille like many of my cohorts did, although I know she is very much a nurturer of all of their spirits and is a mother and a grandmother herself. But she has nurtured my spirit in, in certain ways and my writing. What I know about poetry is all due to her. What I know about what it means to be a brave poet, to be a brave black woman poet, her poems have mothered those poems. And so I want to read a couple of, of the poems that, that I really think do that. What the Mirror Said. Listen, you will wonder. You a city of a woman. You got a geography of your own. Listen, somebody need a map to understand you. Somebody need directions to move around you. Listen, woman, you not a no place anonymous girl. Mister with his hands on you, he got his hands on some damn body. Mother, I am mad. We should have guessed a 12-fingered flower might break. My knowing flutters to the ground. Mother, I have managed to unlearn my lessons. I am left in otherness. Mother, someone calling itself light has opened my inside. I am flooded with brilliance. Mother, someone of it is answering to your name. And the final poem. The light that came to Lucille Clifton came in a shift of knowing when even her fondest sureties faded away. It was the summer she understood that she had not understood and was not mistress even of her own off eye. Then the man escaped throwing away his tie and the children grew legs and started walking and she could see the peril of an unexamined life. She closed her eyes, afraid to look for her authenticity, but the light insists on itself in the world. A voice from the non-dead past started talking. She closed her ears and it, spell and it spelled out in her hand. You might as well answer the door, my child. The truth is furiously knocking. Thank you. Hi, my name is Virginia Crawford. And I was lucky enough to meet Lucille at St. Mary's County at the fabulous poetry festival that Michael Glazer organized for so many years. And uh, the two characteristics I most admired about Lucille uh, were her, her tremendous kindness. And she just had this immense presence. Um, it was just so fabulous to be around her. And... Um, the way, yes, she was definitely always speaking the truth, but I thought with an element of kindness to it. Um, and one of the ways she showed me this kindness was, I think it's kind of funny. Um, <laughs> I was newly pregnant with my first child, 
And she was aware of this. It was at the festival, and it was during a break between workshops. And so, as usual, there's lots of many women flooding toward the ladies' room, and there's a line, and I'm pregnant, and I have to pee. <laughs> And there is Lucille in front of me, and, and she's next, and she's, Virginia, go right ahead. <laughs> and that was more than a decade ago, and I still remember this tiny, tiny kindness that I just love that, you know? It's just amazing. Um, the second thing I really, really love about her is uh, the way she acknowledges um, connection between all people and um, the world and everything touches everything and connects to everything. And um, this one particular poem I wanted to share uh, particularly, I think, shows that. And I woke up this morning thinking about this poem and it, it kind of stretched into even another dimension considering our current um, disaster in the Gulf. Uh, it's called The Mississippi River Empties into the Gulf. And the Gulf enters the sea and so forth, none of them emptying anything, all of them carrying yesterday forever on their white-tipped backs, all of them dragging forward tomorrow. It's the great circulation of Earth's body, like the blood of the gods, this river in which the past is always flowing, Every water is the same water coming round. Every day, someone is standing on the edge of this river, staring into time, whispering mistakenly, only here, only now. Thank you. Hello, my name is Dennis Barnes fellow poet. When they were playing the video, I closed my eyes, and just the voice is the same. Exactly when I met her 20 years ago at St. Mary's Festival. I was a transplant from St. Louis, saw in the city paper, here's a wonderful poet, come on, poetry festival, come on down. Didn't know anybody, drove almost two hours, had a wonderful time. Grace Cavallari, met Len Roberts, and of course had repeated conversations with Lucille. Where's Reggie? Reggie, you made me look. I have a signed book here, $10,000, if anyone wants to. <laughs> you made me look at Joy Explanation Point, and it is there. I thought two explanation points because I was really having a good conversation with her in 1990 when, when the book came out. So a couple of the phrases, um, you know, I really relate to uh, Lucille with this uh, understanding. I'm an engineer, so I get science and math during the day, and these words flourish at night. I also edit uh, Poets, Inc. around town, work with Rosemary. Rosemary is kind enough to publish a book of mine, you know, 30 years in the works. So some of the phrases I heard during the uh, video was, I feel, therefore I am. Wow. I want to understand. And then maintain through a uh, chaos. 
when I met her 20 years ago, I fell into a groupie role, you know, the musician. So she would perform around Baltimore, Baltimore County. I actually went up to Harford Community College to hear her, another hour and a half drive. Wonderful each time. Now at Harford, she was distressed. She read about three poems, closed her books, and said, look, I have a problem. I read about this crazy guy. I think it was over in England or Germany, lined up some kids and students and shot them. And she said, I'm just, I need to say something. My first impression was this crazy person cannot be a poet because poets are human and humane. It stays with me. So. This first poem, I'm going to read two. The first one was read uh, about 93, 94, down at St. Mary's. There's one word in here, in the words of uh, Emily Dickinson, I want poetry to just blow the top of my head off. One word in here did it. So maybe at the end of this, I'll relate what word. Maybe somebody can get it. This is called Climbing. And I'm about her age when she wrote it. I'm 58 now. I think she was 55, 56. Climbing. A woman precedes me up the long rope. Her dangling braids the color of rain. Maybe I should have had braids. Maybe I should have kept the body I started slim and possible as a boy's bone. Maybe I should have wanted less. Maybe I should have ignored the bowl in me, burning to be filled. Maybe I should have wanted less. The woman pass passes the notch in the rope, Mark 60. I rise toward it, struggling, hand over hungry hand. Any guesses on the one word that really shook through me? What's that? Bowl. Yes. Bowl. B-O-W-L. I think I might have heard it. My second cereal, not my favorite, was Alphabet. And I could just imagine the bowl in me with all these letters to be arranged. And I talked to her after the reading down there at St. Mary's. I said, you know, you really shook the foundation here. And, and she said, oh, that's nice. That, that, wasn't, that wasn't what I meant at all. Well, the, the appetite, the appetite. But alphabet soup, or cereal, alphabet soup, that could be too. Oh, anyways, kind of funny uh, reaction there. Let me see. Now, the son, in this humane human poetry, called her poetry moral quality. I, I like that phrase. The best story that I have was at Artscape one year, and the lady who wrote this book, I don't believe she's here, Ann Caston, I don't know if you remember her. Yeah, she was her good poetry friend, a nurse, going into poetry, taking classes. Well, she and I submitted manuscripts for Artscape poetry the same year. Now, there's one winner out of 40 or 50 deals, but they give an opportunity to read. I dragged my mother, and we sat 
four hours waiting for the list to develop. I look up in the corner, who's Lucille and Ann. I'm like, whoa, national poet. And five years, or five hours. Now, it was air conditioned instead of going out there. I thought that remarkable, that she would give the time to mentor, and I guess Ann is in Anchorage. I checked her out on the website. Great story. Sacrificing, mentoring, and developing. Okay, one more poem. See if I can get through it. This is from Mercy, the one she was reading in the video. Dying. I saw a small moon rise from the breast of a woman lying in a hospital hall. And I saw that the moon was me. And I saw that the punctured bag of the, bo- of the woman body was me. And I saw you sad there in the lobby waiting to visit. And I wanted to sing to you, go home. I am waiting for you there. Namaste. Um, a couple people have signed up to uh, to read. So Ted Hendricks and Carolyn. Yeah. Good evening. I'm Ted Hendricks. I teach Stevenson University. Yeah, of course, Lucille Clifton uh, had a long and a distinguished connection with Maryland. She taught at uh, Coppin State in 1971-1974, of course, a long career at uh, St. Mary's College. My older son uh, attended there briefly and uh, remembered her as a commanding presence. Yeah. Of course, she was also a poet laureate of Maryland and uh, for many years a uh, trustee of this institution. So, in uh, reflecting on that uh, connection with Marilyn, I thought I would read a uh, sort of affectionate uh, memoir of Baltimore. This is from, uh, it's a short uh, prose sketch from a uh, book, uh, Memoirs of Generations. Driving out of Baltimore, you turn around narrow one-way streets and long-named alleys and stop in lines of school teachers on Monday mornings. Every car had a woman driver, except ours. Where are the men, I laughed. On the corners, Sammy laughed back. Everything was funny. Everything was funny. We curved and crawled round past wards, past the last hamburger before the highway, and broke out of the city like out of chains. Red gunned the motor and laughed, and we left Baltimore behind us. An old black lady watched us making noise outside her country door. I could hear her head shaking. This is Maryland farm country. We've been ice niggers here. I laughed at her frown. Fred nodded his head toward the front of the car. Be careful, he said. Pennsylvania is out there. We all laughed. Everything was funny. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. 
people who know me knows I love to take pictures with them. So it was indeed an honor to have a picture taken with her when she was here at this library. I have two short poems. My dream about the poet from next. A man, I think is a man, sat down with wood. I think he's holding wood. He cars. He is making a world, he says, as his fingers cut citizens, trees, and things, which he perceives to be a world. But someone says that is only a poem. He laughs. I think he's laughing. <laughs> and the last one short, the poet. I beg my bones to be good, but they keep clicking music, and I spin in the center of myself, a foolish, frightful woman, moving my skin against the wind and tap dancing for my life. Thank you. Uh, there are a couple people who we uh, asked that could not uh, join us uh, tonight, sadly, and so I'll read a little bit of what they've sent. <clears throat> um, unfortunately, I'm in Vermont all summer and won't be able to participate in the tribute. I'm, I'm, excuse me, I'm disappointed because Lucille Clifton was someone I admired tremendously and felt great affection for her and learned much from her poems. It looks like a wonderful event, and I especially like the fact that you're inviting people, not just established poets, to read a favorite poem of Lucille's. She would have liked that aspect of the event very much. With regards, Michael Collier, former Poet Laureate of Maryland. And this, I wish you a wonderful evening of celebrating the light that was Lucille, how it still shines, how the nurture that she gave some gave to so many of our lives, lives on in her work and in our many memories of the gifts she gave that have strengthened, encouraged, and sustained us. With warm personal regards, Michael Glazer from St. Mary's and current Maryland Poet Laureate. And this is also a remembrance from uh, St. Mary's. I often overheard Lucille explain to students and sometimes colleagues that, quote, poetry isn't about how smart you are. It's about how human you are. In other words, Lucille firmly believed that writing and teaching should bring us closer as humans and allow us to examine our shared humanity. Poetry, according to Lucille, should reflect our sense of empathy for others or serve as a partial examination of our hearts as well as our intellect. Poetry is not only capable of expressing what is human about us, it also possesses the ability to make us more human. When this sentiment is expressed by someone as accomplished and respected as Lucille, it carries an unimaginable amount of weight and authority. The aspiring writer listens, and advice does not ring hollow. Like a good poem, advice like this sometimes takes years to fully sink in, but eventually does. It is impossible to measure how many young poets and writers Lucille persuaded to become more human in their work. We will all miss Lucille, not only for the seemingly endless parade of talented writers she brought our way to St. Mary's College, but for her calm, soft-spoken, yet incomparable human strength and wisdom. Her spirit will forever inhabit and nurture St. Mary's College. Um, and now I'd like to uh, ask uh, Clorinda Harris, Daniel Imhoff and Mona Lisa Gross, Johnny Amawale, and Linda Joy Burke to come up. Clorinda? <laughs> 
And I want to thank Camilla for, for trading places with me. And it wasn't just on the basis of our similar names. It's because I wasn't sure... Well, I haven't gotten used to what time it gets dark, and I am night blind, so, and I'm driving by myself, so I figured I'd better not be almost the last person, which, which is how I was originally scheduled. So, Camilla, thank you so much. I'm, I'm, I have three anecdotes that um, sort of encapsulate my, the, the, the feelings I have and my connection, which is very precious to me, with Lucille Clifton. Uh, the first is just one that... Uh, taps into the theme of poet as human, humane human that already has been um, mentioned several times tonight, and that is that when she was invited uh, about a decade ago to uh, read at Towson University, uh, and, and really one had thought, well, how can we even afford to have her, because we were used to poets understandably expecting decent honoraria, her stipulation was that she would be happy to do so free, but that either half or greater than half of the program had to be students reading. And uh, it was a marvelous event, but also emblematic of her extraordinary generosity. And wait a minute, I'm standing on my tiptoes. I'm going to see if I can... Mm. Yeah, but then, then it might... Well, can you still hear me? Am I still on mic? Okay. Oh, I forgot to listen to what you said. Can you hear me? Oh, oh okay, good. <laughs> it's the history of my teaching, too. I ask a question then, and I forget to listen to the answer. <laughs> Off and running. The first anecdote that, that leads me into, into Lucille is one... Uh, and both of these are ones that she told me. Um, she was... Uh, uh, one of her books, one of her early but very much acclaimed books had just come out and it was uh, being featured at a local bookstore whose name I guess I won't mention, but I sure do know which one it was, um, and a life-size uh, full-color cutout of her, a photograph, you know how they, they are, those photographs that frighten you. Oh my God, what is Jim Palmer doing in the, next to me in the grocery store? Well, I was, Lucille um, said that her life-size cutout was there beside a stack of her books and she was buying something and she wanted to use a credit card but she had forgotten to bring identification so she, she marched over and she stood next to the life-size cutout of her and said, see, and, and the bookseller's clerk said, well, you can't be Lucille Clifton because that Lucille Clifton is famous. <laughs> so talk about prophets in their own country. And, um, but because she to the reason she told me about that was that I had uh, called her Actually, I had first written her a note saying, may I call you? And, of course, she immediately called me and said, you know, of course, she, because I needed to call her to find out if she would be willing to read um, in the Poetry at the Angel series, which Diane Fancy and I ran at a Fells Point bar for every weekend for three straight years, and readings by the great and famous like Lucille, but also readings by people who wandered in somewhat inebriated off the street. I mean, it was a, it was a great series. And, um, and she, I, I was so apologetic about even bothering her, and she told me that anecdote about 
you know, I considered her extremely famous, and she was not recognized even when standing beside a life-size photograph of herself. So that was her, her point in telling me that story. The other one, she, was, she called me and told me with great apology in her voice, I had wanted her, Diane and I had wanted uh, her to be represented uh, along with Josephine Jacobson and other leading lights in an anthology that came out of the Poetry at the Angel series, and it was called Baltimore Renaissance colon Poetry. And uh, she called me to say with uh, great distress that she had only just then received our letter requesting the possibility of her contributing a couple of poems. And this was a year after the anthology came out. And what had happened was that there was apparently another person in the Baltimore area named Lucille Clifton who got all her mail for for a number of years and when finally confronted with it and when Lucille, you know, gently and sweetly, as you know she would, asked the other Lucille to have her letters back, the Lucille the other Lucille said, Well no, I am Lucille Clifton and I am very glad that they had offered me and that there's some great honor and uh you know, I'll contribute the poems as soon as I... I mean, she absolutely refused to turn over her mail until finally um, federal regulations had to be mentioned, you know, and so finally, a couple of years later, Lucille got that batch of mail, which I found fascinating. And indeed, I stole that whole concept of the imposter with the same name for a short story that I wrote and, and actually won a prize. So I guess I'm an imposter too, you know? <laughs> I, the poems of, 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 of Lucille Clifton's that I'm going to read are ones that I picked, and you may think they're odd choices, uh, they're, they're short, but um, they are simply poems that for many years, and they are from um, An Ordinary Woman, which came out in 1974. These are poems, at least one of them I know she did read at The Angel, but the main thing is they're poems I think about all the time because they involve things that I actually do all the time. And so I've thought about these poems and lines from these poems every time I do these things. I'm sorry to say, well, one is a, a great thing to do after you get back from the Waverly Farmer's Market, you chop collard greens. Uh, the other one is not a great thing to do, but you also do it as you get back from the Waverly Farmer's Market if you live nearby, and that is you work on killing the roaches. And, and the third one is something that's... Uh, that's not so so heavily fraught, and that's uh, about leaves in the fall. Cutting, uh, cutting greens. Curling them around, I hold their bodies in obscene embrace, thinking of everything but kinship. Collards and kale strain against each strange other, away from my kiss-making hand and the iron bed pot. The pot is black, the, curl, the cutting board is black, my hand. And just for a minute, the greens roll black under the knife, and the kitchen twists dark on its spine. And I taste in my natural appetite the bond of live things everywhere. And if that doesn't sanctify cutting vegetables, I don't know what does. But also makes it pretty hot, too. So I like that. Um, this is untitled. At last, we killed the roaches. 
Mama and me, she sprayed, I swept the ceiling, and they fell dying onto our shoulders in our hair, covering us with red. The tribe was broken. The cooking pots were ours again, and we were glad. Such cleanliness was grace when I was 12, only for a few nights, and then not much. My dreams were blood, my hands were blades, and it was murder, murder all over the place. And um, the, the, the lovely one about, the tiny one about leaves. The lesson of the falling leaves. The leaves believe such letting go is love. Such love is faith. Such faith is grace. Such grace is God. I agree with the leaves. Every fall, I think of of Lucille Clifton and agree with the leaves. So. Hello. My name is Mona Lisa DeGrosse. I work at the library and I write children's books. And my partner here tonight? I'm Danny Wimhoff. Um, my mom works at the library as head of children's services, which is sort of how I'm here. And um, I was asked to do this about two days ago, and I personally didn't know who Lucille Clifton was, but now that I've read these, I know who she is. All right. Okay. I've got to watch this kid. You know what W.C. Fields said about work with children. <laughs> I discovered Lucille Clifton on the pages of a children's book. My first introduction to her. I was kind of nervous about that because I knew it would be a room full of poets. And, um, but my introduction to her was from Monday morning. Good morning. Being six is full of tricks and Everett Anderson knows it. Being a boy is full of joy, and Everett Anderson shows it. My children and I read and reread that book. We selected different days, different times, different days of the week. We had favorite ones, we'd say them. I started out reading it to them, and they ended up reading it to me. We loved it. And Tuesdays, all day rain, it really didn't seem to be about Everett Anderson. It seemed to be written for and about me. It was the reason I never, never had my umbrella when it rained. Doesn't seem like almost 40 years has passed since I met this literary boy, but it has, and now I'm a grandmother, praying that I won't be a great-grandmother soon. And I'm still in love with Everett Anderson. 19 books for children, most of them about males. Eight of the 19 books are the Everett Anderson series. I've read most and owned some. I've never lost my wonder and respect and reverence for the Edward, Everett Anderson series. When the longing came to me to write, and it took a whole lot of different terms and finally settled on children's, I just couldn't, you can't stop it, you know, I wanted to write, I wanted to write, I wanted to write, and children's write, writing was a strange, strange place to be for me. So I work at the library, and I have access to a wonderful children's collection, so I went and gathered every Everett Anderson book 
that I could find, and we had them all. And so my homework for that weekend was to take the Everett Anderson books home and read them a different way, not reading them to my children, not reading them to captive audiences of nieces and nephews, but to read them for instruction. So I get the books, I'm sitting down, I'm reading them. Who's black and runs and loves to hop? Everett does. Who's black and was lost in the candy shop? Everett Anderson was who's black and noticed the peppermint flowers? Everett Anderson did. Who's black and was lost for hours and hours? Everett Anderson did. How simple. I mean, I'm just reading, I'm picking up one after another. Why is this simplicity so hard? Why can't I do this? Why is this language so clear, so concise, so on point, and I can't do it? All of the things are there that needs to be in children's books. Character, place, atmosphere, subject, her cityscapes, the apartment, the love of the mother and the absent father. She has it there. Sketchy, three words, four words, some phrases, all, all so very complete. All done, invoking images, calling forth times of long ago. Ooh, what magic is this woman working? By the fifth or sixth book, I know it's magic. She's doing something here in this magic. It's not sleight of hand, but it's sleight of mind. And I'm getting nervous, because I ain't going to be able to do this. But I'm talking to myself. Calm down, Mona. You can't do this, but you can do something. And that's the gift Lucille Clifton gives to a children's writer. That's the hallmark. That's the blueprint. You look at her work. You try to figure it out. You try to see what alchemy is going on here, but you're stuttering and you get the character of this little brown boy and his journey and his wonder, and you get caught up in it. And you hope that some of that comes out, comes through the brain, the eyes, and goes down through the arm and hits the paper. Some of her, Daniel is going to read for us Everett Anderson. Um, the first three poems I'm going to read are from Everett Anderson's Year, which is by Lucille Clifton. The first one is called April. Rain is good for washing leaves and stones and bricks and even eyes. And if you hold your head just so, you can almost see the tops of skies. July. Everett Anderson thinks he'll make America a birthday cake. Only the sugar's almost gone, and payday's not till later on. September. I already know where Africa is, and I already know how to count to ten. I went to school every day last year. Why do I have to go again? So you know that's hard to catch that, don't you? And I'm reading and I'm reading. And I guess you have to go to the memoirs and her poetry to find out how could this woman do this? 
She is Everett Anderson. She has taken all that she is and knows and put it through and come out to Everett. That's Lucille Clifton. And I don't have any personal memories of her, but through her children's books, I know her and I know me. And I think that's some of the magic of her. So, Friday, waiting for mom. When I'm seven, mama can stay from work and play with me all day. I won't go to school. I'll pull up a seat by her and we can talk and eat and we will laugh. And how it ends, mama and Everett Anderson, friends. You can't do any better than that. Whether you're a child, reader, or an adult student, you remember the uncomplicated joy of sharing a good time with a friend. It doesn't matter if you're skipping school or work. Laughing, talking, and sharing a meal with a friend is still the ultimate good time. In Everett Anderson's year, there is November. Thank you for the things we have. Thank you for mama and turkey and fun. Thank you for daddy, wherever he is. Thank you for me, Everett Anderson. He celebrates being him. Throughout the series of Everett Anderson books, the character remains constant. Any book in the series, we find him inquisitive, reflective, and connected to himself and his surroundings. Lucille Clifton, through the character Everett Anderson, helps the reader explore the big wide world while appreciating himself. Daniel is going to do the last poem in December. This poem is called December from Everett Anderson's Year. The end of a thing is never the end. Something is always being born, like a year or a baby. I don't understand, Everett Anderson says. I don't understand where the whole thing's at. It's just about love, his mama smiles. It's all about love, and you know about that. In an interview, Lisa Clifford said she wanted her own children to be able to relate to the stories that they read and have both a mirror and a window. Mirrors in which they could see themselves, windows in which they could see the world. This was her intent for her writing for children. She more than achieved this goal in her writing for readers of all ages. The last reading Daniel was going to give you is Everett Anderson's Goodbye. And this book of poetry moves through the five stages of mourning outlined by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in Deaf and Dying. She took this big, big, mighty book and brought it down to these five stages, and it's beautiful. Daniel? From Everett Anderson's Goodbye, I shall start by reading the five stages of grief. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. I shall start with one. Everett Anderson holds the hand of his mama until he falls asleep and dreams about Daddy in his chair and at the park and everywhere. Daddy always laughing or never, just Daddy, Daddy, forever and ever. Three, bargaining. I promise to learn my nine times nine and never sleep late or gobble my bread if I can see Daddy walking and talking and waving his hand and turning his head. I will do everything you say if Daddy can be alive today. Five, acceptance. After a little bit of time, Everett Anderson says, I knew my daddy loved me through and through, and whatever happens when people die, love doesn't stop, and neither will I. 
I guess her secret in her children's work is complicated simplicity. I don't know. I'm still reading. I haven't found it, but I'm glad that it is. Thank you. Good evening. I'm not going to do a, um, a reading from one of Lucille's poems, but I'm going to talk a little bit about being in rooms with Lucille. In 2006, in June 2006, I had the great honor to um, drive Lucille home from Cave Canem, which is a poetry retreat that um, Lucille was deeply involved in and supportive of. And Cave Canem, for those of you who don't know, is a poetry um, retreat and um, fellowship of African-American poets. That year, which happened to be my graduate year, you, you get to spend three years as part of the retreat week, and then you become this wonderful, part of this wonderful group of fellows. And Lucille was um, deeply involved um, with that group. So during the week, um, Lucille was there, and I remember one of the special sessions um, that um, she, was a, she was leading the special pet session, and she was talking about poetry and the creative process. And I asked her during the, the period where we all just kind of chatted with her about the Fox poems. And um, the Fox poems um, are in Blessing the Boats, and I had been reading that collection of hers, and um, I'm kind of sorry I didn't bring one tonight, but maybe somebody will share one. But it's, uh, there are these little poems um, based in St. Michael's when she worked there um, where this fox shows up, and the fox shows up outside of her door. And so she has this series of poems with this little... Um, Fox, and it fascinated me, and I felt really connected to um, this totem of sorts, this fox, and um, so I asked her about it, and I said, where did the fox come from? You know, what is, what is that? And she said, well, you know, it actually happened. You know, the fox was there, and the fox would appear, and so... Um, then she kind of went on to talk about um, how in some of her poems, and this was like a second part to that whole discussion of Fox poems, um, how you know some of her poems were really deeply spiritual, and she actually had some poems that she felt really came through her that were not her poems, that they had to be written and they came through her. And what really, really... Um, kind of traveled through the room there, um, through all of us as we're sitting there listening to her, is how spiritually connected Lucille was, just so connected with spirit. And um, the room really got quiet as she was talking about this, as she delivered a couple of these little short poems that really came through her. And um, so that was one of the times I was... That was one of the times I was in a room with Lucille. But what really happened after that was magical for me was the journey that we took together as I drove her to 
Columbia. Um, and so when, when Carolyn Menklin came over to me and said, oh, can you drive Lucille home? I was like, are you kidding? Of course I can drive her home. Somebody else was supposed to do it, and, um, but it really worked out. So Derek Brown and myself, um, we're, we're all excited. It's like, we're going to talk about poetry with Lucille. We got her in this car, and um, it's just going to be fabulous. Two hours. So... Um, we get in the car, she sits on the driver's side, and I'm, I'm trying to make sure she's comfortable because it's a long ride. And she, Lucille pretty much just wanted to go through. She wanted to come all the way through, and she didn't want to do a lot of stopping, although I was concerned about you know, her circulation and her being you know, feeling good. Um, and we get in the car, and I'm thinking, okay, Derek and I are going to just pounce on her with all these wonderful questions. But what happened was something really, really special. Lucille and I discovered we had this connection that we had been in rooms together since I was, I guess, in my early 20s and she was probably in her early 40s because we were about 20 years difference in age. And we were always in these, these rooms, but we didn't know it. But during this conversation, we discovered we knew all these people, that I knew her husband, Fred, that, um, you know, just all of these different, there were like all these different passings for us. And so it was a fascinating conversation. I wish I could have recorded it. I was just so, we were both kind of spellbound when we, we started talking. And then she would say, oh, do you know this person? And i go, yeah, I know her, you know. And, oh, we got into some serious gossip, too. I mean, we really talked about people. Oh, yeah, you know, I know her. And, and so that is what happened. And poor Derek, he's sitting in the back seat. And he's like, okay, I'm not getting into this conversation. I just need to be a fly on the wall and listen. And, you know, so poor Derek, he's just in the back seat and can't get a word in. You know, there will be no talking about poetry on this ride. So we, we got to her house in Columbia, and I actually met one of you. I'm not sure. We, yes. So I met one of her lovely daughters, and she showed me the house, and I just felt really privileged. I floated the rest of the way home. Um, from that um, ride in the car. And also later I began to think of other times that I would see Lucille when I was young because I was this young poet and I was you know, trying to be in the poetry world. And in some cases we were in rooms because I was actually kind of following her around. You know, It's like, okay, Lucille Clifton's going to be there. Sort of like the, the story somebody else talked that, um, told and I have to be there because she's going to be there. Um, the first time that um, I heard of Everett Anderson was because I went to, to the library. She was going to be reading, and I had this small daughter, and I just really wanted my daughter to hear these words and to see this book. So that was yet another time. And I think we went to actually a couple of those readings. Um, so we were in rooms countless times together, and I feel that kind of connecting connection with Lucille because of that. And I feel even now very connected, continue to feel very connected with Lucille, because now I teach, 
And I um, really, really um, feel like every semester I have to introduce Lucille to my students in one of my classes. And so I show videos of her reading. And the very first time I did it, and they heard Sorrows, I had a number of students or were like, I love that poem. I have to write about that poem. That's going to be the poem I analyze you know, for my paper. So I'm still in rooms with Lucille through her poetry that I share with my students now. Um, and so I'm just really, I feel great being here, and I just wanted to let you know how wonderful meeting and connecting with your mother was. Okay, thank you. Good evening. My name is Linda Joy Burke. Thank you, Reggie, uh, for organizing this for us. Lucille Clifton was the second major American poet that I met, the first one I met when I was 17. And I believe I met Lucille somewhere in the 80s. I was having a good poetry year. I uh, submitted some poems to a uh, reading series uh, for Howard County Poetry and Literary Society, and which I had been trying to get someone to see that I was a great poet <laughs> for years. Well, that year was a good year for me. Uh, Lucille was the judge of the actual competition, and I won. I won uh, the privilege of being recorded and reading, and I remember her saying to me, you're a good poet. And I went, oh, okay. I'll take that in. Um, what Lucille gifted me with in my own life was, and I got this from a couple of other major American poets, but she was the first one, that it was okay for me to be human in my own skin, more so than any of the writing, that it was okay to be human in my own skin, to be a feeling person, like she said, in a world that is very competitive. Everybody's looking at everybody else to see what y'all are doing and trying to kind of keep up with everybody. I don't think Lucille was like that. Lucille was just folks. And um, you know, I'm a little nervous speaking about her. Um, but I come from a period of time when, when you're a celebrity that you treat them with a certain kind of, you know... They're not approachable. Lucille was so approachable, so just present and friendly. And she didn't have to talk about poetry all the time. I mean, you know, she's kind of a funny woman. Um, <laughs> uh, I told her that I did ghost stories. I was kind of afraid to uh, share with the poetry community that I, I, do, do ghosts, I, I do ghost tours. She's like, oh, that sounds like that's fun. I'm like, phew. I got a nod from Lucille. It's okay to tell people in the poetry community that I do ghost stories. Um, and I know that she collects dolls. And, and the artistic part of her, um, I um, was able to make her a little doll, a little teeny doll. And I don't make them for very many people. Um, but she was really quite lovely and gracious by that. Um, as I got to know her more, I began to read more of her work. And as I got to listen to her voice whenever she did a reading, it was so different than some of the other poets that I was hearing. I was hearing a genuine human being. 
and what was it? An authentic, as I t- said about Joyce Scott, an authentic human being speaking, not someone that was better than any of us. She was us. She is us. It's really hard to do. It's really hard to do. And so I'm really grateful for that. And I'm grateful for her family, you guys. Because I know that if it weren't for you there with her, keeping her focused and everything together in the house and whatnot, her life wouldn't be as it was. So thank you. So I'm feeling like you, Reggie. Uh So if the water starts to come, it's really okay. I'm going to read two pieces. They're both from the Book of Light. Actually, I'll read this one first. The poem is called Move. On May 13th, 1985, Wilson Good... Philadelphia's first black mayor authorized the bombing of 6221 Asaji, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, Asaj Avenue, after the complaints of neighbors who also black about the Afrocentric Back to Nature group headquartered there and calling itself MOVE. All of the members of the group wore dreadlocks and had taken the surname Africa. In the bombing, 11 people, including children, were killed and 61 homes in the neighborhood were destroyed. They had begun to whisper among themselves, hesitant to be branded neighbors to the wild-haired woman, the naked children, reclaiming a continent away, move. He hesitated, then turned his smoky finger toward Africa, toward the house he might have lived in, might have owned or saved had he not turned away. Move. The helicopter rose at the command, higher at first, then hesitating, then turning towards the center of its own town, only a neighborhood away. Move. She cried as the child stood hesitant in the last clear sky he would never see, the last before the whirling blades, the whirling smoke, and sharp debris carried all clarity away. Move. If you live in a mind that would destroy itself to comfort itself, if you would stand fire rather than difference, do not hesitate, move. In the second poem, it's called, It Was a Dream. It was a dream in which my greater self rose up before me accusing me of my life with her extra finger whirling in a gyre of rage at which my days had come to what? I pleaded with her, could I do? Oh, what could I have done? 
And she twisted her wild hair and sparked her wild eyes and screamed as long as I could hear her. This, this, this. Mr. McGrogan? Uh, unlike uh, most of the proceedings this evening, I uh, created a, a poem uh, in honor of Lucille. And Reggie said it was okay to read that. So it's entitled Recalling Lucille. Rare black pearl or softly cooked black-eyed pea. You talk to us in poetry speak. Hushed tones as a mother whispers to her newborn about possibilities and love, then we cooed in reply. Hello, my name is uh, Robert Lockett. I'm a friend of the family. I was very close friends with um, uh, Lucille's daughter, Rika, who passed away a few years ago. So this is kind of a, a, uh, a tribute to her, Rika, and her mother. Rika was, well, I'm afraid to say this, but she didn't fit all the so-called Negro stereotypes. <laughs> she didn't like watermelon. She didn't like fried chicken, uh, ribs, or anything like that. And she could not dance. She could not, she could not keep a beat. Um, and after I read her mother's memoirs, uh, this should explain why. Please bear with me. I'm very nervous, and I usually don't do things like this. Uh, this is from uh, Good Woman, Poems and Memoirs, 1969 and 1980. And this, I have to say I'm not really a, a poetry person, but I've read her memoirs and I loved them. I absolutely loved her memoirs, her prose here. So here we go. Harvey Nichols was a white man, my daddy would say, who, came, who comes south after the war to make money. He brought his wife and family down and bought himself a house and everything. And it was close to the sale place. And all the slaves had stayed there after emancipation because they said the sales was good people. But they had changed their last name to Sale. I guess I should say that Sale was S-A-L-E. And then they changed theirs to S-A-Y-L-E. Changed their last name to Sale so people would know the difference. And this Harvey Nichols saw Lucy and wanted her, and I said, she must have wanted him too because, like I told you, Lou, she was mean and didn't do nothing she didn't want to do, and nobody could force her because she was Mammy K-Line's child, and everybody around there respected Mammy K-Line so much. And her daughter Lucy had this baby boy by this Connecticut Yankee named Harvey Nichols. They named the baby Gene Sale. He was my daddy, Lou. 
your own grandfather and Mammy Kaline's grandson. But oh, I'm sk I'll skip that part. Later, I would ask my father for proof. Where are the records, Daddy, I would ask. The time may not be right, and it may just be a family legend or something. Somebody somewhere knows, he would say, and I would be dissatisfied and fussed with Fred about fact and proof and history until he told me one day not to worry that even the lies are true. In history, even the lies are true. And there will be days when we would, and there will be days when we young cells would be trying to dance and sing in the house and Sammy would miss a step and not be able to keep up to the music and he would look over in the corner of the room and holler, damn Harvey Nichols. <laughs> and we would laugh. You know, <laughs> um, so sometimes Rika and I would be playing around and dancing around in, a, in her living room in her apartment and uh, I would be trying to show her how to dance and you know feel the music keep the beat and she couldn't do it and a lot of times we would just say at the same time damn Harvey Nichols <laughs> and we would laugh Uh, a couple of things have been said by some of the other people up here that brings back uh, a number of memories. One thing I wanted to mention about Everett Anderson is that downstairs in our children's department, we have a night room and a day room where we have programmings and then uh, where we have programs. And um, in the day room where we do the Mother Goose on the Loose, where we teach um, parents how to read to their infants and all that. Um, up in the skylight, there are names of various characters from children's literature. And um, when uh, Ms. Clifton was here a number of years ago when the library was giving a Lifetime Achievement Award to her uh, fellow from Howard, Toni Morrison, um, we, uh, we asked Ms. Clifton to introduce her. We mentioned the fact that amongst the names in the skylight is Everett Anderson. And I think that she so loved that. I, she was just so, so loved that. And um, like Jody, I too have been in rooms with Miss Clifton. And I wanted to say that there was one evening um, where there was a conversation between her and Sonia Sanchez. Um, now, even looking at them, they were complete. They seem completely different. You know, Sonia is very well. First of all, Sonia is about this tall, um, and. Electric and vibrant, and just you just so amazing. And people were amazed that they knew each other and actually liked each other because um, Sonia's poetry is a bit um, harsher sometimes <laughs> than uh, than Miss Clifton. But they were together; they'd known each other for years. And church people will understand when I say they lifted that building that night. I don't think I have ever recovered from that evening. It was absolutely extraordinary, and this was at one of the Cave Canem. Uh, uh, retreats when it was in upstate New York at a monastery in the middle of nowhere. We were completely isolated. Um, I called home. I called my grandfather. I said, I love you. He said, what are you talking about? What, what are you all drinking up there? What are you doing? So it was, it was Miss Clifton and with Sonia. That, that did it. Okay. Um, <laughs> this is uh, from uh, Laura Oram and the uh, Best American Poetry uh, blog. I met Lucille almost 20 years ago in Southern Maryland at St. Mary's College, where she taught for many years. 
I was lucky enough to be assigned to her for a brief tutorial, and I was scared to death. People at St. Mary spoke of her as if you were a combination of their mothers and the goddess Athena. But she was friendly and kind, even perhaps a little shy, as I walked into the room, poems in trembling hand. She gave my poems an encouraging, thoughtful reading, and I left the tutorial as bedazzled by her as everyone else. Soon, through the ages of a women writers group of which she was a member in which I shortly was invited to join, we became friends. The group met in St. Mary's County, and I came down from northeast Baltimore to attend. Lucille didn't drive, and I sometimes would pick her up from her Lexington Park apartment. Sometimes I would fetch her from her home in Columbia. She shared with her daughters those beautiful, gaudy girls of her poems. The Columbia house was cozy and comfortable, like Lucille. Quirkily, in the living room, there was a small-scale suit of armor, maybe three and a half feet tall. That's not a night, Lucille would joke. That's an evening. (laughs) On those drives, we would talk about all kinds of things, not just poetry. Raising children, the latest literary gossip, what to have for dinner. The writers group was important to Lucille because she was able to relax there. She could hang out and laugh and gossip and share poems and laugh some more. Not an icon of American literature, but just one of the girls. One night at the writers group, Lucille told us about a fox that had been hanging out on her front porch. Lucille wasn't what you'd call an animal person. She seemed to be a little afraid of them but she regarded animals with an innate respect that she gave the whole world. I said, being the gaga animal lover, something like, wow, that's an honor. She chose you to visit. Lucille laughed and said, well, she assumed the honor went to someone else. But not long afterward, she came to the group to share what became the Fox poems of her 1996 book, The Terrible Stories. She wrote the, she wrote the Fox, powerful, scary, beautiful, into metaphor to help her write what are perhaps her most difficult and bravest poems. So typical of her that she had that kind of artistic courage. She also had personal courage. She faced the deaths of her husband and two children, cancer, kidney failure, a transplant, and what Hemingway called grace under fire. Even when her health really began to fail, she made her way to conferences and readings. She retired from teaching, but she never retired from poetry. Telling our stories. The fox came every evening to my door, asking for nothing. My fear trapped me inside, hoping to dismiss her, but she sat till morning, waiting. At dawn we would, each of us, rise from our haunches, look through the glass, then walk away. Did she gather her village around her and sing of the hairless moon face, the trembling snout, the ignorant eyes? Child, I tell you now, it was not the animal blood I was hiding from. It was the poet in her, the poet and the terrible stories she could tell. Uh, Camilla Aisha Moon, Rosemary Klein, Sharia Moore, uh, Melvin Brown, Carla Dupree, and Diane Conway. Wow, Um, what a beautiful evening we're having. It's not what you're called, it's what you answer to. And um, something inside of me knows how to write poetry better than I do. Um, Those are just two pearls of wisdom that resonate within, um, that she shared with us. Um, Wow, sorry. Um, My name is Camila Aisha Moon, and I 
um, have an ocean deep admiration uh, for this woman, this poet, um, this new angel who is likely holding court in heaven right now, <laughs> laughing that robust laugh she always did. Um, I am extremely grateful for every encounter I was able to have with her at various conferences and readings, and um, most notably at Cave Con. And we are so blessed we had that, ex that time with her. I was part of that 2006 class, and I'll never forget. Um, wow. I had the privilege of reading with her and Jody and Reginald in this room a couple of years ago as well. Um, I guess all I can say is that her writing is indispensable to me. Her presence was a joy. And um, she remains a model to me of what's possible in so many ways and on so many levels. Um, she mined the gold of everyday life, and she lit up our minds and our hearts only as she could. And um, thank you so much for sharing your mother with all of us. Um, yeah, we, we still have her here. We do. Um, I feel like she's here now. Do you feel like she's here? Yeah. Um, I'll read. Miss Rosie, because she paid attention to people, you know. When I watch you, wrapped up like garbage, sitting, surrounded by the smell of two old potato pills, or when I watch you in your old man's shoes with the little toe cut out, sitting, waiting for your mind like next week's grocery, I say, when I watch you, you wet brown bag of a woman who used to be the best looking gal in Georgia, used to be called the Georgia Rose. I stand up through your destruction. I stand up. Well, I'll pause there then. Um, thank you, Miss Lucille. There are two ways that I know Lucille. Um, one is committees. And the other is Maryland Poetry Review. And I'm not going to talk about the committees, except to say that it's been so exciting to hear everybody talk about everything that they've said and what a kettle of fish got opened up when we all found out that all these years, all she's been writing to us is joy, exclamation point. <laughs> you know, and I, when Reggie started it and then it kept flowing and I realized all these books that I had with me, um, my copy of Generations, which I really treasure, which young Lucille, um, and my copy of Passenger, which University of Baltimore put out. Um, and, and that's what the committees were good for. I would take all my books to them, and she would sign them. Um, but Maryland Poetry Review, which was, um, and Linda Joy has a uh, little Patuxent Review, which has an issue de dedicated to Lucille right now. And when Maryland Poetry Review started out in 1986, Lucille blessed us with a series of her poems. You know, a lot of her poems she liked to write in series. Um, one series that is going to come up again in a minute is her Dream of Foxes series, which really was a wonderful series of poems. Um, so what she gave us were five poems called California Lessons. 
And they became the end of her book, Next, New Poems. We were thrilled. And I'm going to read you three of those. Botany. All common figs can produce fertile seeds if the flowers are pollinated. In Concord, in 1985, a black man was hung from a fig tree. The fruit is dark and sweet. Semantics. In 1942, almost all the Japanese were concentrated into camps internment, but no doctor came. Metaphysics. Question, what is karma? Answer, there is a wheel and it is turning. And then, it's so funny because the other two poems that I picked, maybe it's not funny, but the other two poems that I had picked to read, I, I, I reread all of Lucille's books, getting ready for tonight, all of them. And out of the whole oeuvre that she wrote, um, I chose um, um, Why Some People Be Mad at Me Sometimes and Telling Our Stories, which were the two that Reggie wrote, read, read, and, um, which was kind of interesting. But there's one more. I mean, I love the poems that she wrote about families, and um, this poem speaks to me about my family, and I think that that's what she wanted. Like Linda Joy said, that connection always between us, the personal and the universal. Heaven. My brother is crouched at the edge, looking down. He has gathered a circle of cloudy friends around him, and they are watching the world I can feel them there. I always could. I used to try to explain to him the afterlife. And he would laugh. He is laughing now, pointing toward me. She was my sister, I feel him say. Even when she was right, she was wrong. Good evening, everyone. My name is Sherry Moore, and I write about love. And tonight, I feel so much love for Lucille Clifton. I need to be honest, prior to Reg inviting me to read one of her poems about three months ago, I did not know who Lucille Clifton was, and I had not read any of her poetry. And um, so I asked around. I'm new to Baltimore and Maryland as well. And I asked some of my colleagues, my coworkers about her, and quite a few of them were really excited. And one colleague in particular, Carol, said, I know the exact poem that you need to read because you're feisty enough and I think you can carry it. And so she printed off homage to my hips. And I was like, oh, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I could read it, but it's cool and it's exciting and I feel it. But I was really, really, really nervous. And then Red sent out an email asking everyone which poem they would read. And he said, I sure hope someone can, can, I think he said, tear it up or, I don't know, something like that, homage to my hips. And I was like, okay, 
I have to take this challenge on. And so now I read homage to my hips. These hips are big hips. They need space to move around in. They don't fit into little places. These hips are free hips. They don't like to be held back. These hips have never been enslaved. They go where they want to go. They do what they want to do. These hips are mighty hips. These hips are magic hips. I have known them to put a spell on a man and spin him like a top. Thank you. Good evening. I'm so nervous, but I'll be all right. Uh, thank you, Reggie, for, for, for putting this together. Family, good to see you. Uh, my name is Melvin Brown, and I, uh, um, I used to work for this joint here. I used to, uh, I, I used to edit a magazine called Chicory, um, and I was the editor of it for uh, 10 years, starting around um, 1971. And about 72 or 73, I think, is when I met um, Lucille. So it was through this job that I was able to meet her. And uh, as people have mentioned, um, one of the things that I did in the early years was drive Lucille to readings. You know, it was selfish motivation on my part because I got a chance to stand in the wings and, and, and look at this um, great talent, read her poems. Uh, never knowing that I would ever be able to read uh, the way that she read, but I would drive her anywhere she wanted to go. So I would drive her to a lot of readings. Um, and during that time, um, oh, I know what. I, I skipped over something I wanted to say. I was thinking about it. You know, uh, Carolyn Rogers passed this year, too. And Carolyn Rogers was a very um, major voice in the black arts movement and a and someone that I didn't know, but I'm sure Lucille knew. And, uh, you know, I'm sure they're together um, exchanging poems and looking down on us right now. But if you don't know the work of Carolyn Rogers, uh, you, should, you, you should know, that, know her. Um, and Lucille wouldn't mind me bringing her up because Lu that's how generous Lucille was. She wouldn't mind share, ha having her share some of this time. So... So what I used to do is I used to ride her around. I used to drive to any reading that she wanted to go to. I would be there with Lucille. And during that time, I was um, always, you know, I was like a little puppy asking her questions about things. I wanted to talk about, I, and I'm sharing some anecdotes, some memories. I, I wanted to talk about the black aesthetic. And, uh, you know, I, was, I wanted to be a revolutionary black poet. And I wanted to talk about the role of the black writer. And I would be asking Lucille these questions and, just, just, and one day Lucille just looked over at me and said, uh, "You know, Melvin, I, I don't let white people spend that much time in my head." <laughs> and uh, it took me a couple of beats to get it, but I got it. I got it not too long after that because. As people have said, um, Lucille was just human, and Lucille, I, I don't remember any long conversations about poetry with Lucille. Right? We talked about family and um, movies and gossip and, uh, and music and, and, and things like that. Lucille loved to talk about those kind of things. 
Um, I've got a poem that I wrote for her in this book of mine called Blue Notes and Blessing Songs. And uh, um, at, at the risk of being immodest, I'm going to read first this, uh, this little testimony that Lucille wrote for me on the back of it. She says, Melvin follows a tradition, griot, storyteller, music man. His poems are straight, clear thinking. In the words of Etheridge Knight, he too, seems, he too sees through stone. Celebrate this new good book. Now, I wouldn't use, I'm, you know, I, I wouldn't use my name and Etheridge Knight in the same paragraph. You know, I teach Afri- African-American literature, and I teach Eth- Etheridge Knight. And so, but this was the way Lucille, Lucille, was, Lucille did. I mean, I wouldn't use it, but Lucille used my name and Etheridge Knight in the same sentence. And uh, that's just, just how generous and, and giving she was. The poem that, uh, before I read that poem real quick, it's a short poem, and it's uh, almost uh, Luce, Clifton-esque in a sense, because Lu- Lucille, you, uh, those of you who know her, remember she used to say, people ask me, why, she said, I write short poems, and people ask me why my poems are so short. And I tell them they're short because when I finish, I stop. <laughs> um, and and, and that, that is a lesson I've had to teach some of my... <laughs> uh, some of you have heard her say that, right? She said, when I finish, I stop. And I've had to pass that on to some of my students because sometimes, you know, in creative writing classes, Students just go on and on and on and on, and they don't know when to stop. Lucille knew, knew when to stop. Um, what else I wanted to say? Um, uh, in, so I met Lucille in the 70s. I spent a lot of time with her in the 80s. Um, and, and in the last 10 years or so, I didn't see her very often. Um, but but the, another thing about Lucille, when uh, I visited her in, uh, she had a teaching position in, uh, in California, at the University of California in uh, Santa Cruz. And my buddy and I, Peter Harris, who was living in Oakland at the time, we drove down from Oakland to Santa Cruz to hang out with Lucille one day. And, um, you know, we were teasing her about, um, you know, this, 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 this digs that they had put her up in. It was really... Uh, you know, just it was a condo that was real slick and everything. But Lucille wasn't impressed. Lucille wasn't impressed with her celebrity at all. You know, but um, that was a fun time. We spent the day on the beach, and um, uh, but Lucille was regular. Lucille was like now. At that point, I had gotten to uh, 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 you know she was this icon. But at that point, I, I had gotten to the point where I was. Lucy with I used to call her Lucy girl when I saw her. What's up, Lucy girl? And because um, I had gotten that from generations, there was a a, a family member used to call her Lucy girl. Uh, anyhow, I want to read this poem. It's a poem called uh, uh, "Birthdays." Now that's the the, the, the irony and the, and the fittingness of this. I wrote the, this poem. This book was published in '95, and this poem is called "Birthdays." I have always had these two big eyes in the world, and though they have been small in knowing real gifts at times, they have always been in the world, open and ready to be huge lovers of holier instructions. 
They have always been in the world open and willing to feel the shapes of saner ways. Today they feel the ways you give a world of words, and those ways are so sane. Today they feel the world owes you birthday presents, gifts as sane as yours, gifts as sane as yours. So that was Lucille. Lucille was someone who um, brought, um, and anybody that she touched, she brought a little bit more sanity in the world. And it was a pleasure to know her and, and experience the gift of, uh, of such a wonderful human being. Thank you. Some people are visionaries. They can find light in a dark-filled room and a way to get there. Our founder, Ellen Conrad Kennedy, knew 37 years ago that through Hoko Polizzo, Howard County Poetry and Literature Society, poetry and literature should thrive in Howard County and make a difference in the lives of its people, so it does. Some thought it a true wonder that Hoko Polizzo survived this long, but having featured more than 200 celebrated poets and writers, it did. It took more than money and an elaborate plan. It took refusing to settle and demanding that it reach more and more people, and thankfully, we can clearly say it has. So it was no surprise that Ellen and Lucille would find their way to each other. Lucille was a creative advisor to Hoka Pulitzo. We are here today to celebrate Lucille. If she knew last year that on this day, we would gather together in her name to celebrate her life and her work, she would be amused. She would be amazed that on this day that people will share her poetry and her words will slip from the mouths of spirited youth. Born with 12 fingers, she believed there was something truly mystical about them. Her doctor chose to sever them so that she would be ordinary, but she was no ordinary woman. My extra fingers are cut away I'm left with plain hands and nothing to give you but poems. I knew Lucille, the poet, long before I knew her as a friend. I knew her sassy rhythms and the heartbreak that came with many of her poems. I always wondered how she could be so truthful. Wasn't she afraid that people would know too much about her personal life? Why would she set herself up to be examined beneath the scope of so many critical eyes? What was it about her that made her bleed so heavily on the page? It takes a brave woman to stand up before the world and declare herself damaged. It takes knocking around an ego to bear all of your baggage and offer up your scars for everyone to pick through and to determine your worth. Who else could speak to the shapeshifter who ruled her nights as a girl, who came by way of the father in the shadows to undo her childhood, the father moaning a lullaby in a wolf's voice. Who else could speak to trying with her hand pressed on forgiveness as she tried to put an end to the life growing inside her that refused to die? Who else would write so candidly about her life so that she could leave the way for you to tell your own truth? Her mother died young, a mother, Lucille wrote, whose wild hair scratches my dreams at night. A mother who was also a writer who destroyed her own work to manage someone else's expectations. The unthinkable act of seeing her mother's words destroyed in a fire 
confirmed Lucille's place in the literary canon. Lucille and her mother were so strongly connected in life and in spirit that it seems fitting that they died years apart, but on the same day. Lucille made her way in this world. She refused a stereotype and without benefit of a roadmap, found herself in places unheard of for black poets. She had no idea the generations beyond her would embrace her work. Her poetry made some folks uncomfortable, but over the years, thousands would show up at the Dodge Poetry Festival readings to hear what this black woman had to say. There is something telling about opening the door to the truth. While her poetry took many paths, it revered women because in her day, women had a particular hardship. She knew without question what it took to be an artist and a mother and a wife, that no one would allow you time for it. So she wrote her short poems and wrote about the canvas that came to be her life. Some of her work was angry. And if you know anything about anger, you know that once it's out of the cage, it's likely to wind up in so many places. When you are that kind of angry, no one can quiet that storm that is bound to break across the waters of your life. Lucille declared open warfare on those who committed wrongful deeds. She spoke of shameful acts performed on women who were being silenced, on black men who lost their footing, and on children who had no say. Her bravery leaked from her pen like a warrior slipping knives through flesh because you have to understand, she wanted to be sure someone knew. Someone had to bear witness to all the wrongs of the world. Someone had to, <laughs> someone had to bear witness to all the wrongs of the world, whether it's done to the children, to the women, to the homeless, to the disenfranchised, to the ones leading sorrowful lives, to the ones living through restless mourning. Somebody has to speak for them. Why not you? Her students testified that she demanded that they lend voice to their written words, that yes, if they are happy or repulsed, we need to hear that. If they are resigned and rebellious and, is, and feel as if the world isn't doing enough, we need to know that too. The fact is that you are young and you have stories, meaningful ones, ones that should be shared and celebrated, heard and forgiven. We all have stories. Who else, who are we not to share them? Lucille would ask, why don't you poem that? Many young writers believe that what they have to say is not important enough. Who would want to know what they think? When you tell your secrets, you may save someone's soul. When you put it out there, that stained sheet, that fat elephant, dark sheet that you might be, that hidden condition, that broken marriage, that unspeakable thing, someone, somebody, somewhere will find the same relief that you did once you found yourself free of it. Her losses were many. Between her health and all that was taken from her by way of her children, her innocence, and her personal freedoms, she knew unequivocally the strains of hardship. How do you measure loss when it becomes a spiritual and physical burden? How do you contemplate love and sex in your winter years when the man you love most could no longer love you back? When she lost two of her six children, she learned that no matter how many awards she accepted, no, no matter how many times she crossed the stage dressed to the nines to poet, she was marked by the loss of her children. Who could ever recover from such a thing? How will I forgive myself for trying to bear the weight of this? She charged an audience with her declarations, with her need to address injustices for those who didn't have a way to speak those ugly truths. And yet, with all of her literary riches, 
Lucille grew up poor. Some of us think we know what true hunger feels like. Some of us even feign it. We think we know, but not until you have gone hungry for so long that water looks good. Will you know that kind of thirst? Not until you can experience the good times of being able to pay the rent when most days you can barely get by, not until the lights come back on. Not until you feel the pain of a family member choosing another direction in life because that is the only way they could escape the poverty of spirit. Not until you have gone from this to that, until you place your babies in their graves, not until you have longed for a righting of the wrong done your ancestors. Can you know the pain or the thirst from what I speak? Lucille remembered. She said, the only mercy is memory. It was within the walls of her memory that she performed her best work. And while she championed education, she was a self-taught poet and didn't need a degree from an institution to tell her how to poet. Lucille was a student of life. Shortly before she died, she received the Centennial Frost Medal for her literary lifetime achievements. In her life, she was more humble than you could ever know. It doesn't mean that she didn't strut on occasion. But the truth is, in her quiet moments, she still questioned her worth. And one day she openly declared, I'm not finished. In her last days, she wondered if she had done enough. When you think about Lucille, think about the fact that no barriers kept her from the truth. The moment she waved that stained sheet in our faces, she surrendered all shame when she let out those secrets. Understand that she had no roadmaps. She had peers like Gwendolyn Brooks and Sonia Sanchez and Nikki Giovanni, but she, in her own way, was her own woman, reinventing herself over and over again. The mother, the wife, the poet, the lover, the child, over and over until the words could speak for themselves. Today, you young scribes heard Lucille's words. Let her language dare you to write your stories by way of a poem. I dare you to have the audacity to write your haunts, your angers, your loss, your sufferings, and your magnificent joys. If you intend to celebrate her life, then take a stand for recognizing that your voice counts. Praise Lucille because she would tell you, son, there is power in those words. Do it for Lucille who would like to believe that her life stood for something that you represent the generation giving back. Uh, beloveds, we're coming full circle now. I'm calling you beloveds, and I dare call you beloveds in the same way the Dalai Lama says there's no such thing as stranger, simply a friend you haven't met yet. And so as we are full circle, I had the privilege of um, treating Lucille with acupuncture. I've been doing acupuncture for 38 years, and uh, she didn't particularly like the sharpness of the needles, but she loved the poetry of the medicine. And... Um, uh, all the students and everyone who's at Thai Sophia Institute for the Healing Arts, which is my institute, knows Lucille Clifton because we bring her poetry moment by moment. So thank you, Carla, for th throwing to us this challenge that says presence, this joy and this love, this joy exclamation point. So here's a poem of Lucille. Say it after me. It's a part of the poem called Hag Riding. Galloping down the highway of my life. Say it. 
something hopeful rises in me. Rises in me and runs me out into the road. And I lob my fierce thigh. High over the rump of the day. And I ride. Honey, I ride. ride. So let's come full circle with a children's song. The, sim- the words are, oh joy, given that she used the word oh joy with an exclamation point. And we're just going to sing it, and that's the only words, oh joy. And we'll just sing it for a little while, and we'll present our beloved Lucille Clifton. And we will let love be at the end. Yes, we will, Lucille. Oh joy, oh joy, oh joy, singing. Oh joy, oh joy, oh joy, oh joy, oh joy, oh joy, oh joy. Oh joy, oh joy, oh joy, oh joy, oh joy, oh joy, oh joy. There's a children's album called Teaching Peace, and children sing on that album what we just sang. Let us teach peace, beloveds. Oh joy, exclamation point. Thank you, Lucille. On behalf of all of us, we are your beloveds. This has already been alluded to by others, but we do have members of uh, Ms. Clifton's family here, uh, her daughters, and uh, we thank you so much for coming, and thank you for sharing your mother with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. So you didn't want to... I know you said you didn't want to say anything, so... Okay. All right. Uh, A couple of things before uh, we close. One thing, unfortunately, Mona left, and I wanted to say, since she mentioned being a children's writer and reading Everett Anderson, which, of course, I did, too. Everybody read Everett Anderson. That she was wondering, as a children's writer, how did she do it? I wanted to let her know that those of us who are poets or try to be poets, we don't know how she did it either. Um, We went to the workshops and asked her questions to try to pin her in the car. I understand exactly how he felt. It's sort of like, she's going to tell us how she does this. She's going to, one day that secret's going to come out. She's going to tell us how she does Never did. Never did. I think one of the great honors, one of the great things that all of us who, you know, had that experience where we read in the same room with her or was in a workshop and reading in the same room with Lucille Clifton was terrifying, by the way, was uh, absolutely like, who am I to be standing up here? And she, oh my God, Um, was uh, for her to say, you know, that was good. I like that. And, um, you know, no matter what, prizes, awards, treasures, money, whatever, just, you know, to have Lucille say, you know, I like that poem. That's what we're going to take with us. And um, I'm going to end with something written by another Kaveh Khan person and one of our dear friends and uh, President Obama's uh, inaugural poet, Elizabeth Alexander. But first, um, I wanted to say that there, a number of years ago here in Baltimore, there, there is an annual meeting of writers and uh, teachers of literary, literature professors and uh, others called AWP. It's Association of Writers and Writing Worktops. Actually, it should be AWWP, but you know how writers are. It's AWP. And um, it was held here in Baltimore a number of years ago. And um, one of the things on the program was a tribute to Lucille Clifton. And it was held down at one of the hotels uh, downtown in a room about, 
you know, this size, maybe slightly larger, slightly longer. Um, and I have uh, three memories of that. One of them is being having um, uh, former uh, U.S. Poet Laureate Rita Dove rush up to me and say, where's the Lucille Clifton? You know, uh, you know so I got to get there again. So I escorted uh, Rita Dove into the room. So I was like, ha, 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 look at me. Uh, I'm hot stuff, you know. Uh, of course, she dropped me the minute she got to her chair, but what the hell. Um, secondly, um, Sherry uh, read homage to uh, my hips, and um, at that particular reading, Sharon Olds read homage to my hips. Now, Sharon Olds is that big, and to imagine <laughs> Sharon Olds going, my hips, my hips, was hilarious. And uh, the, fi the final thing, yeah, and Sharon Olds is not exactly something that you would imagine reading homage to my hips. Either those of us, read a Sharon Olds book and you'll see why that's sort of like, are you kidding? Um, <laughs> and uh, finally, as I said, um, that particular event was held in a room similar to this, although a little bit longer, and about uh, 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes before the event was supposed to start, it was packed. It was double-packed. It was standing where people were outside. People, you could not get in. And so, um, as with many of the meeting rooms in hotels, one wall, let's say this wall, for example, was actually a partition and so could be removed. And so, before the event started, workers came and suddenly the wall started coming down and the pilps on, I guess, in the cheap seats over on that side <laughs> suddenly got a view and could actually look. And I will always remember that wall coming down and then this overflow of love and respect and support for Lucille. And so when I think of her, I think of the walls coming down and the opening and the embrace of her and her work and our embrace of her back. This is from Elizabeth Alexander. Though Clifton surely possessed a cat's nine lives, we were still shocked that she had left us for I do not think there is an American poet as beloved as Lucille Clifton or one whose influence radiated as widely. No matter how elaborate the words they use, poets strive to tell elemental truths. As Clifton often reminded her acolytes, truths and facts are two different things. Time and again, she made luminous poems premised on clear truth-telling, but always with a twist and with space for evocation and mystery. Her style was as understated as the lowercase type of her poems, a quiet, even woman's voice telling sometimes terrible truths. Like psalms, koans, and old folks' proverbs, Clifton's poems invite meditation and return. Clifton believed and showed in her poems that there is but a sheer curtain between the living and the dead. She often conversed with the dead, crossing back and forth without comment, for in her worldview, the dead and the living are in constant conversation. In the death of Fred Clifton, the poet's dead husband describes the exhilarating revelation and vision that death offered. He reports, there was all around not the shapes of things, but oh, at last, the things themselves. The philosophy that this poem exemplifies is now of comfort to the readers and poets who mourn her passing. Passing, that particularly African-American way of describing death, seems quite Cliftonian. The living pass out of one state into another, but
but passing is ongoing, not finite. Those we are loved are just over there on the other side. In my sorrow, I am speaking to her now, longing to hear her say, you did a good job, baby. As the old saying goes, every shut I ain't sleep, every goodbye ain't gone. We thank you all very, very much. <laughs>